1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, my guest today has seen a lot in the military, in civilian life, running her own company, and then working for some very large corporations and doing some incredibly interesting projects, I might add, along the way. Now, as she's going to say, some things have gone well, and like most leaders, there are always some mistakes along the way, or I should say learning opportunities, or maybe you just want to say things didn't go to plan the way you would have liked it. So what we're going to talk about today are the three steps that the military teaches and that ultimately seem to make all the difference. And those three are getting to know the team, building trust, and then taking it to the next level. Now, I'm going to say... Geez, those are easy to say. Get to know the team, build trust, and take it to the next level. Of course, who wouldn't want to do that? But the focus for today is on what to do and, more importantly, what not to do so that you can do great things. So my guest is Jen Donahue. She's a U.S. Naval officer, a leadership coach, an engineer, and an entrepreneur. She's the founder of a globally recognized company, J.L. Donahue Engineering, and she's worked with a vast range of clients, including PG&E, Duke Energy, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART, for those of you who know it. And she's led operations around the globe, from building a bridge in an Iraqi war zone to constructing combat outposts in deserts filled with insurgents. I think we now know why we need to listen to her and what does and doesn't work. She's, uh, Jen is also known as the Earthquake Doc. She successfully spearheaded earthquake and tsunami reconnaissance missions in Samoa and Japan. She designed the seismic plans for a bridge over the Panama Canal. And she serves as the seismology expert at five nuclear power plants. She's on a number of professional boards, including the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute and the U.S. Geological Survey. And if that isn't enough, she's a lecturer at UC Berkeley and UCLA. And I would say she has her PhD and master's degree from UC Berkeley as well. Jen, if I can get the words out, welcome to the show. (laughs) It's good to have you.
2: Thank you, Wanda. I'm so glad to be here today.
1: It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Wow. Is that an impressive background? I can't imagine building in an Iraqi war zone or becoming the earthquake doc. Okay, so I'm super duper impressed. Before I get started on that one, though, I want a little bit of the personal side. I want to know what gets you into this leadership space, trying to teach people how to be better leaders. What started that for you?
2: Whenever I was in the military, they start leadership at day one. You know, you got the drill instructors that are right there, and they're yelling in your face, and they're starting to teach you to become a leader right at that day one. After I got off of active duty, I went to the corporate world, and I found that there just wasn't a lot of leadership opportunities and a lot of lot of leadership teaching that was going on. And I looked at my counterparts, not only in the engineering business, but also in finance and medical, and just finding that there are all these young engineers, young financial experts that just had absolutely no leadership training whatsoever. And so I started taking them under my wing to show them, look, there's these little bitty tips and tricks that you can have so that you're not just a technical expert. You can start to become that leadership expert. And at that point, you have exponential growth within your company. And that's one of the things that really got me is that there's just been this lack of leadership training. And I'm just so passionate about it since I've been doing it for so long that I just want to help other people. That's
1: so it sounds like you've got the prelude to both the radio show out of the comfort zone, as well as my book, which is this notion that we are all these expertise, but we actually don't understand how to lead in the midst. So... In your experience, is it possible to take all these engineering grads, engineering-oriented, or as one of my clients recently said, forgive me, engineering geeks, and turn them into great leaders? Does that actually work?
2: It does. I have a great mentor. His name is Rudy Bonaparte, and he's one of the first people that showed me that you can be, in the civilian capacity, a great engineer and a great mentor and leader. He takes so much time with each one of the folks in his company to go and personally meet them and to start knowing his team and building that trust and pushing them to be better. And this is a company of 1200 people and he made an effort to try to get to know every single person. At the same time, he was one of the rock stars of two technical earthquake engineering. Okay. You know, Renowned around the world, everybody went to Rudy, you know, for their really hard projects. And so that tells me that, yes, you can have both. You can be this fantastic leader of people while still being a technical expert.
1: Okay. All right. I know some of my leaders who are listening right now are saying like magic to their ears and tell me more, tell me more right now, right now, because I know that they have this problem (laughs) right in front of them at this moment in time. Um, I have to come back to one thing you said that I think is amusing about how little leadership we see. I was talking recently to Margaret Heffernan, who's also a guest on this podcast, and she said, for all the leadership writing that we've got out there in the world at large, there is so little leadership that she sees, which I think is fascinating. We got more published than ever and so little in practice. And she went on to say, at every level. All right, Jen. Now, when I was titling this show, I started to say, be a great leader, but you have a particular mantra that says, do great things. Why do great things? What's that about for you?
2: Do great things is a saying that we've had in the military for quite some time. Every time I would send somebody out on a mission, I would always end with, go do great things. Because what's that showing is that, one, you don't want to do mediocre things. That's sort of the obvious. But when you're sending people out to say, go do great things, That's showing that you have the trust in them to go and do their job and do it really well. And they want to go and excel at what they're doing also. So it's a saying that I've said, you know, every single time whenever I'm finishing up a meeting or whenever I'm sending people out, go do great things because that's what people really want to do in life. And they want to know that their boss is behind them so that they can go and accomplish phenomenal you know pieces of work and reports even even just having phone calls things like that you right. can always do great things
1: it reminds me of one of my colleagues who's a soccer slash football coach in the UK who says, you want to know how to lead a team, you got to have win. If you're not winning some, nobody wants to be on the team. Right. So I think that's what you're saying. This notion of go do great things means, A, we're doing great things, period. And B, I believe you can do great things. And that just inspires everybody. All right. So let's talk about your three-step model. So, I just briefed them at the beginning, but let me have you put them in your words and sort of explain those steps to me.
2: Absolutely. So, there's three steps. The first step is always just get to know your team. That's the foundation for the rest. Number two is you want to start to build trust in your team. And then number three is you want to go beyond that trust. So, I call it trust and beyond. So you're building motivated, dedicated, and loyal teams. Call it the model team, the motivated, dedicated, loyal.
1: Yeah, who doesn't want that one? I'll take that any day. (laughs) And it's the number one question, by the way, I get from my clients at this moment. How do I make sure I have a motivated team? Hmm, It's interesting. All right. So is this a linear progression, meaning I have to start with step one and work all the way to step three? Or is it one step forward and one step back?
2: It's a linear process. However, they can start to blur between the different steps. So as you're starting to get to know your team, you're starting to build trust at the same time. And then as you're starting to build that trust, you're starting to motivate and create those loyal teams at the same time. So it's kind of hard to go and create a loyal team if you don't know them. So it really is a, a linear progression. Okay.
1: All right. So get to know, build trust, and then trust and beyond is your phrasing that you use. I like that one. Let's. I want to take each one of them, and I want to unpack it a little bit. And I want to understand the successes and failures for each of those. So let's tar- start with talking about getting to know the team. Why is that important in your experience?
2: I'll give you a quick story. I sat on a board for three days. And then at the end of that three days, we went out and we had dinner. Okay. At the end of the three days, I had my hair down. It was a nice dinner. So I dressed, you know, a little bit differently than I had. And I sat right next to the president of the board and he turns and he looks at me and he, he ponders for a second. He says, Hey, are you so-and-so's wife? And I had just sat on the board for three days. So imagine how that made me feel that Mm -hmm. I've been sitting on this board. And just because my hair's down and I look slightly different, he didn't even know who I was. I felt so small, I felt so insignificant. It's like, why did I even sit on this board if I'm not gonna have my time actually respected? So you have to get to know your team. Okay. Everybody talks about getting to know your team and you know, we always talk about what are their strengths and their weaknesses? Okay, that's a great place to start, mm-hmm. but I challenge you to say, okay, not only that, do you know their spouse's names? That's a great place to start, to getting to know them. Do you know what their favorite sport is? But even more importantly than all of that is what are their goals and what are their aspirations? That's really starting to get to know who your team is. Maybe you have somebody on your team that's absolutely happy with where they are, and that's all they want to do. Maybe there's somebody on your team that one day wants to be the president of the company. You have to know that as well, and you have to know their aspirations so that you can better feed them and give them the resources that they need in order to go on and do great things. Yeah. So you have to know who they are, just not just the strengths and the weaknesses. You have to go beyond that.
1: The strengths and weaknesses is, in effect, how I'm going to use this person on my team because I use the strengths and weaknesses to get some output, to get some results from them. It's not the same as I care about you as a human being and I know you and your interest as a human being. What it says is I care about your output. Right. And what you're talking about is going beyond just their output and knowing them as individuals, as Absolutely. beings and their total interest, not just their work interest. Fair? That is a very fair statement. Okay, I can tell from your story, and I'm imagining a lot of people have had a similar experience where you feel insignificant mm-hmm. because somebody that you just gave time to either can't get your name right or doesn't know who you are or doesn't remember who you are, even though you sat with them in the same room for three days. Yes, been there. I think we all have been there in some form or another, but there has to be more to why other than just to make, not make somebody feel small. Is there anything else about why it's so important to get to know the
2: team? One of the things that we want to do is we want to build that trust within the team. And as you're looking at them, and if you don't really know who your team is and what their capabilities are, that's not going to take you very far. When we talk about those strengths and the weaknesses, going back to what you said, it's great to always have that person on your team who's, for instance, really good at report writing so you can continue to give that type of work to them. And you might have somebody on your team who's not that good at reports, but maybe good at analysis. I'm just taking these as, as examples. But what if you talk to that person who's not good at reports, but you find out that they'd really like to become better at writing reports, not just the analysis. And so now you're looking at what their weakness is, and you understand that you want, they want to turn that into a strength. So now you're starting to look at how can I help this person, give them the resources, give them the opportunity to be better at a weakness. Now we're starting to turn those weaknesses into strengths, and now you're building an even stronger team by just getting to know them better. Right.
1: And I'm going to get more results out of them ultimately, presumably, if everybody's stronger. Um, Jen, this strikes me back to Amy Edmondson's work on um, psychological safety, and I also think it goes back to everything we know about resilience. I'm going to ask you about this question as we're going. And the number one bedrock for all of that is if the team doesn't feel like you care about them as human beings, you can chuck out the psychological safety, meaning I am there's no way I'm going to tell you what I really think or what I'm really worried about or what I think might go wrong if I don't think you care as my manager. And number two, you can't build resilience. And I'm going to add another third one, um, Kim Scott will say, and you can't give good feedback at any rate, because if you're not giving me feedback out of a place of caring, then it's just brutal. So is that the same concept that you're talking about here?
2: I think it is. When we talk about resilience, I believe resilience is something that can be built. And especially in the times that we have right now, we have to build resilience in our teams. And there's different ways that you can get about that. There's, there's many articles, but I really believe you have to look at some of the destructive behaviors that are going through with resilience, where people are taking things too personally, where they're not gaining the right perspective, and turning those around and helping people and understanding your team's destructive behaviors and when you start to see those. So that you can help them, you can help them with positivity, you can help them strengthen their, their social networks and, and items like that so that you can build resilience in your team. Okay, okay.
1: All right, so building the resilience. Now, one of the questions that I'm getting from every manager I talk to, um, the first question is, How do I show people that I care when we're all remote? I don't see them face-to-face. And quite honestly, even if we were all in the office, you still didn't see them very much face-to-face because you were probably traveling all over like crazy and going to meetings yourself. So what tips do you have beyond just the how are you doing today formula to really get to know people, get to know the team in a way that's going to make a difference?
2: One of the great examples that I just recently came across is a friend of mine Whenever she would have her weekly calls with her staff, she would have that call, but then she would also break it apart. And then she would call the person and just talk to them as a person for 20 minutes. Just, hey, how are you doing? How was your weekend? No work whatsoever, but just concentrating on just that person and giving them sort of the care and feeding that we might have had when we were back in the office. And I'm sure that you were probably having probably more meetings than you ever had before on Zoom and WebEx. And those are great. It's good to have those meetings so that we can still keep up and keep basically keep the machine running. But I want you to think about when you're in the office or when we used to be in the office. We could go into the break room and we could talk to each other about, hey, what did you do this weekend? Or maybe when you're in the hallway or in the elevator, you're having those more personal calls and more personal conversations with people as opposed to what we have now we get on zoom it's all business and then we go off and we do and we don't have that same type of personal interaction yeah. so like i was saying a friend of mine what she's doing is she's trying to recreate that type of personal interaction with people to say how are you doing what did you do this weekend hey did you see the game yeah the lions lost again that type of personal interaction with people. And I think that's one of the ways that we're going to have to get through this. Maybe it's a phone call or whatever it is, but as leaders, we're going to have to do more than just have our regular WebEx and Zoom meetings. We're going to have to get out and touch people like we used to be able to in the halls and in the elevators and everywhere else. Yeah, I'm
1: hearing from lots of people that I coach in the midst of the organization and who've been attending my virtual classes and so on who are saying I miss that hallway interaction because there was so much information that was exchanged, you know, I got context there, I could ask a particular question or I just feel seen and heard and cared for and that is missing. And I will also say I if I hear one more time I may lose my mind. Just asking me, how are you doing? And then rushing ahead with the agenda is not enough. As one person said to me recently, if you don't know by now that I've lost three relatives in this pandemic, then don't ask me how I'm doing. (laughs) Like, that's just, so it's knowing that. Okay, Jen. So we've talked a lot about how well, how important it is and just to get to know the person and the human being and their interest, their outside activities, their aspirations and goals, as you've said. So let's take it to that. Um, oh, I have one more question for you before I take it off to the trust. How about for people well, like the summer interns that are coming into organizations and who will never meet anybody face-to-face for their entire time that they're there or the brand new hires? that are on the team for two, three, four months, they haven't met anybody. Any sort of thing that the leader or anyone on the team can do to help those individuals feel like they're known?
2: I think this is really important because this is something that is going to carry on, not just through the wintertime. I have a feeling it's going to be through the spring and maybe the summer. And maybe we all are more remote, more than we ever have been. So this is something that is not just for us here at the very beginning of you know the lockdowns that we're going through the second time. I think the best way that we can look at getting at this problem of getting to know our new hires and our interns is we're going to go back to the, we need to spend some time really just getting to know them. And if that's over Zoom or whatever that might be, mm-hmm. that might be the way to do it. And again, this is not going to be a business call. I've heard of happy hours. People are having lunch. Those types of occurrences where you can say, hey, everybody, we're just going to have lunch together. Everybody bring your sandwich and let's just talk and get to know each other. Go forward and say, you know, hey, hey, Bob, hey, Jane, you know, we understand that you're new to the company. Tell us about you and we'll tell you about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's starting to open things up and people are becoming more vulnerable when you start Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. explain who you are and your passions. But you have to have somebody to help facilitate that. For instance, whoever that leader might be to say, please reach out to this person as if they were still in the same room. Right. Don't think of it as a WebEx. Turn your email off. Turn your phone off. Mm -hmm. We are going to be present for this type of meeting.
1: Well, I think the most important thing you've said in all of this is the separating of the business tasks from the get-to-know-you task and not throwing the get-to-know-you into the 30 seconds before we start, and it's a fake question, but being intentional about that. All right. So, having done that one, let's move to the second one, which I think is the where it, to me, it strikes as easier said than done, the building of trust. So, what have you found works, and more importantly, what doesn't work on building
2: trust? What I found that works for trust is, again, going back to a bit of vulnerability mm-hmm. and going and asking your team what they need to be successful. So that's a piece of it. You know, maybe they need a new piece of software. Maybe they need a new chair. Maybe they need something for their home office. But you have to go first. They always say that trust is a two-way street and to which it is, but you have to get on the on-ramp first. So you have to get on the on-ramp and you have to show that you trust your team. Okay, so you have to ask them. And say that you have a project where it's a very complex project and maybe you don't know all the bits and pieces of it. Go find the person on your team that does and ask. Be vulnerable and ask them what they're doing how they're doing it and things that you need to know about that process. Mm -hmm. And what that shows is that you're willing to listen as a leader. Mm -hmm. And it shows that you have trust in them, that you can be vulnerable in front of them to say, I don't know what this is, please help me. And now that you've shown that you have a better chance of them trusting you back because they understand that you have their back as far as what they need to do. Mm -hmm. They're ready to go. They're ready to help you and help the project. Okay. So those are the ways that I found that have worked.
1: Right, right. And I hear the same advice from people all the time. Um, one of the things that I say, I, I smile because you say the same thing, which is encouraging to me, is I believe trust is a gift first and then a receive, that if you don't give it, it's not going to work. If you stop to think about it, if you You didn't trust me. Why would I ever trust you? Like, it just doesn't make sense. But we're all talking about needing to earn trust as opposed to give trust. I think we got it backwards. I love to hear you say that, though, Jen. Thanks. And then the vulnerability, just that asking for their perspective and listening to that. So the willingness to admit, I don't know. Okay. Sounds so good. I've also
2: seen where it does not work well. And yep. this is one of my <laughs> okay. one of my own epic failures. I was a young junior officer and I was put in charge of 12 people. And we were in charge of all of the administrative items for the battalion. So mm-hmm. all of the evaluations, all of the fitness reports, all of the all of the other reports that have to go through mm-hmm. the battalion to make sure that it's still up and running. Right. It's not the the cool Operations job, but it's a necessary job. I'd never led troops before and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I looked up to some of my leaders, and at that time they were all yellers. And okay. I thought, oh, well, I guess this is the way that you lead people you yell at them to make them do what you want to have done. <laughs> and that and it was an epic failure. I went, I had this whole stack of paper, I brought it into the executive officer. It looked like a massacre. He took his red pen, and it was like it was like blood all over the place. You know, it just it was just awful. And he gave it back to me, and he yelled at me, and degraded me. And so I was like, okay, I guess that's what you do. So I took this bloody stack of papers with red ink all over it, and brought it back to my team, and completely yelled at them and degraded them. And it felt really awful. <laughs> it really did. Um, and you know, I think about this, and I still get a little choked up about it. And realizing that this was like 24 years ago that this happened, you know, but it's one of those things that have just absolutely haunted me because I had started to build trust in them, but then I came in and did that and just shattered whatever trust that I had begun with. And because they actually knew what they were doing, but I was trying to impose my own ideas on the way that it should be. Mm -hmm. And I didn't trust them and I didn't ask the right questions so that that stack of papers didn't come back the way that it did. So that was my own epic failure across the board. You know, I didn't listen to them. I didn't trust them. You know, I yelled at them and I just wasn't a a good leader towards them. So that's that is my epic failures as far as how not to build trust.
1: Right. So how did you figure out that this was the wrong way to do it? I mean, did somebody come back and tell you? Did one of the young people in your command come and say, you know, hey, that didn't work?
2: Um, How did you figure it out? I felt it in my gut. It just mm-hmm. felt so wrong. Okay. You know, some of the other officers were like, hey, yeah, you know, heard that you, you know, did this to the admin department. Yeah, I was like, yeah, good job. And I'm like, that's not who I am. I, <laughs> I can't be that type of leader. I I can't have this type of emotion of yelling at people and how that made me feel on the inside. So at that point, I realized I've got to go find new mentors. And, and that's what I did. Uh, but just that, that pit in your stomach where you just feel like that just wasn't right. It wasn't right. right."
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have seen some people that I believe respond to yelling and I, but most of the people I encounter don't respond very well to it and no one takes it as a daily diet. So it's not a particularly powerful way of building, certainly not building trust (laughs) or building uh, motivation. It might build competition, but I'm not sure that's what you're looking for. But, Jen, so I'm going to throw this back the way I hear it all the time from my coaching clients. Um, you know, some of the people in your team you didn't hire, they're just there, kind of like in your military experience, you're handed the team that's going to work with you. Right. Some of them are more competent than others, some of them are more skilled than others, and some of them are kind of hard to trust because it doesn't look like they have the right motivation. What's your response to that?
2: I don't believe there's one particular leadership style. Okay, what you've just described to me is a whole spectrum. And what you have to be comfortable with as a leader is identifying those different people and their different characteristics and then understanding how to reach them. Uh Uh, So I look at it as a spectrum that, you know, on the one side, you have that person where you have to stand up very tall, you have to speak very directly, you have to look them in the eye and you had to tell them, this is what we're going to do. And so for some people they're like, okay, yeah, got it, I understand. But if I go to the other side and I have that same type, I'm going to send that person crying to the bathroom. And that's actually happened, you know, not to me, but to a fellow officer just recently. And I'm like, you can't do that. You know, you have to pick up on these small nuances from different people and what they respond to. And you have to become Mm -hmm. comfortable to say, okay, when I talk to this person, I have to be a bit softer And because I want to get through to them. If I'm being too harsh with them, they're going to shut down and they're not going to hear what I'm going to say. And that's going to be absolutely ineffectual. I have to basically tweak my leadership style for different people, knowing what they're going to respond to.
1: Okay. So, what you're talking about is an ability to, I'm going to use a classic phrase, read people. Yes. To understand where people are coming from. Maybe we won't call it emotional intelligence and pick any label you want. But if my entire training has been around the science and the mathematics and the analysis and the engineering, to go back to where we started this segment, how do I come to understand one person's needs and expectations from another person's needs and expectations?
2: That's a great question. And it takes time. I find that if I listen first, if Mm -hmm. I ask questions, and if I do a really good job of listening, I can start to pick up just in body language and their response, what they most require as far as guidance, Mm -hmm. especially as engineers. uh, We are all very, (laughs) we're pretty square. Uh, We're all, we're also a bunch of big nerds. We really are. Um, And I know the Most engineers don't do well with people yelling at them. It's just one of those things. There are some that do, but a lot of us really don't. And, but you have to, like you said, emotional intelligence. Look at the person, look how they're reacting to just a normal conversation. And you'll start to pick up on that. Watch them. On, I guess I would say the hallways, but we don't have hallways these days. So watch them on Zoom or just see how they're reacting. It, It's actually not as hard once you understand what to start to look for. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's the best way to get across to people.
1: Okay. All right, I still feel like we need you sitting beside us, coaching us on, did you see that facial expression? Did you see that period? <laughs> I will give you one hint. Um, it's uh, Sandy Pentland, Alex Pentland's research that I am just now massively in love with. You can tell that we're in a little bit of synchrony because our body languages will be mirrors of each other. And as we're sitting at a table, you know our hands will be at the same place. We'll both be holding a pen in our hands. We'll both be gesturing in the same kind of way. We'll both be sitting in the same angle at a chair, legs crossed the same, and it's like it's a complete mirror. Now, it's harder on virtual to see all of that mirroring, but you sure can start to see it in the room when people are not on the same page and they start to assume the opposite body posture of other people in the room. It's a place to begin to look, I guess, if you can just tune into that and use it as a piece of data, I would say, for the engineers in the crowd.
2: Wow. Wanda, that's, that's a beautiful way to put what I just said. <laughs> I thought you say it first. Beautiful. That was absolutely beautiful.
1: Well, it's easier. I mean, and I find also people need a taxonomy. You need to know, what am I looking for? Especially if I'm not particularly skilled at it, to begin to see your people react in the way I'm not reacting. Okay? Absolutely cool um i have one last thing to say about um engineers if i may so i'm going to speak about you and your profession and this is your chance to tell me i'm wrong so that's the this is the deal here in my direct style um i find that many times engineers need a bit more space to think that if they don't have because we want a fast answer always and not everybody, they want to think through it. They want it, like mistakes happen when I don't have time to think through all the pieces of it. And we get impatient with them. What's your perspective on that view?
2: <laughs> I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. When we look at a classic model, a lot of engineers are introverts versus extroverts. And the introverts are people who like to think about their answer before they speak, as opposed to extroverts who like to speak and think at the same time. And if you really go back through and look at a lot of engineers, most go towards the introverted side where we like to think about, solve the problem in our heads and then speak. Mm -hmm. And so that's absolutely true. However, I've found that a lot of engineers that work on construction, they're a lot more extroverted and they are a lot better at thinking and speaking at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I've noticed, especially about engineers. we like, we really like to have the answer before we say anything. So yes, we do like to stop. We'd like to take a breath. We'd like to give it maybe five seconds and then we'll give you our best answer.
1: Okay. All right. Perfect. I, one of my engineering friends says, and I always remember him in my head when he says this, it's like when I'm working with electronics, You have to take it slower so you step through each piece because stuff can really blow up when you're working with electricity. (laughs) And there's just a heck goes in my head that need to methodically, one, two, three, because it's not how I work for sure. It's a reason I didn't become an engineer. (laughs) All right, Jen, great conversation. My guest today is Jen Donahue. She's a U.S. Naval officer, a leadership coach, an engineer, and entrepreneur, She's the founder of JL Donahue Engineering, and as I said at the beginning, she's done some amazing engineering things like building a bridge in an Iraqi war zone or being the earthquake dock or um, doing the seismic plans for a bridge in the Panama Canal, and our list could go on. When we come back, we've been talking about the three steps that Jen learned from the military and from her own experience for building great teams. It's not about building great teams. It's about getting great things done. So one is the power of getting to know people at a personal level. And the second one is building this trust, which I should say is not building so much as it is giving. Now, when I come back from that, I want to talk about the gold dust, which is how do you go to trust and beyond the motivation, the loyalty, and the dedication? And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website, You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone,
1: With me today is Jen Donahue. Jen is a naval officer, a leadership coach, and an engineer, as we have just said. I should also add, she's an entrepreneur specializing in a whole host of fascinating things like building bridges and managing earthquakes and being the earthquake doc, I guess we should say. Now, we've been talking about Jen's experience both in the military, what she learned to me in the military, and how she's translated that now to helping the young engineers that she coaches and mentors become great leaders so that they can do great things. And the mantra here is do great things because what that says is I trust you and we're going to try to do something that really matters and that's important. Three steps. Number one, get to know the team, not just their strengths and weaknesses, the team as individuals, their hopes, their aspirations, their dreams, their development goals, everything. Their their interests outside of work as well. And two is build trust. And the secret to building trust is Ask good questions and listen. Show your own vulnerability and what you're doing is granting trust to them, that you have faith in them, and then trust will follow for you. All right, so Jen, now we've done those two, we come to the magic secret sauce, I think. Everybody I talk to wants to know, how do I keep motivation? And you're saying this trust and beyond is about motivation, dedication, and loyalty. So tell me
2: how that's done. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I look at a bunch of statistics, I always think about why do people leave companies? What makes people stay at companies? Okay. And as I've looked at this, 80% of employers think that their employees are leaving because they want more money. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But in actuality, looking at several different surveys, really only 20% of those employees are actually going to a job where they have more money. So what are those other 80% leaving for? Mm -hmm. And so you start to look at that and start peeling back the onion. And what it is, is that they're looking for opportunity. Mm -hmm. They're looking for increased authority in a project. They're looking for autonomy. They're looking for all of these things that they did not have at their current job. And it's the prospect that they will have a better life that they will have the authority and the responsibility to go and do great things at another company. Cause it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look at that and think, okay, how do we use this, you know, in our own personal life. Mm-hmm. And the way that I've gotten through to that is that we have to be better managers and we have mm-hmm. to, once we know our team, and once we built up that trust, it's really like trying to let that bird fly mm-hmm. and let them be autonomous give them the responsibility, give them the authority in order to go forward with the different types of projects. Mm -hmm. And I can explain a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. I love that phrase you said, that people leave for the prospect that they'll have a better life at another company. I love that. A better life at another company, the prospect, the hope. And that's because they want more opportunity or they want more authority or they want more autonomy or they want, I would add one more to that, more affiliation. They want to feel like they fit, that they're accepted. Absolutely. And I'm going to come back to you to say, how do we do this in just a minute? But um, I, for anybody who's worried about you know, diversity and keeping the folks that you've worked so hard to bring in the door and train and develop and keeping them walking out the door, I will tell you the reason they walk out the door is because they don't know where they're going in their career. And so opportunity, authority, autonomy, and affiliation, yes, absolutely, totally sign me up. I got it. Okay. Now, Jen, how, what do I do? How do we do that?
2: I'm going to give you an analogy. Okay. So this is going back to my military days. And when we go out into the field to do a field exercise or whatever it might be, you go to your position and you look at it, what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And you have this field in front of you, field of view. And you look to see what's there and maybe there's a tree or a barn or whatever. And you look at that and you get assigned a sector and mm-hmm. that sector, you have the authority and responsibility to defend it at all cost. Mm-hmm. That's your piece. Now you have somebody on your left and you have somebody on your right. And so you have some interlap between, you know, as you get further out there, But in that space, you have all the authority and responsibility to defend that piece of land. I want to take that and use that in the business sense. And what we call this is a left and right lateral limit. This is the area that I can defend, if you want to call it that. Uh, So I want you to think of a project. When I give you the authority and responsibility, what that means is that I'm not going to be over there micromanaging you the entire time. You are the subject matter expert as my team member, and I've given you the authority and the responsibility to do it. Now you have the autonomy. You have the independence to work within that field to do what needs to be done. You're not coming back to me with questions because you are trying to solve all the problems within that. Now you can come to me as a team leader if you do have questions, but if you have different changes in for instance, what's happening out in the field, you still have the ability to make and accept those changes. You have the ability to solve those problems on your own. So you have that autonomy, We're responsible. You have the authority to do so. Okay.
1: All right. So let me give you a case okay. um, from somebody I know and co- have coached and assigned a pretty significant project that's going to be a multi-year rollout that could have massive implications for the financial health of this particular company. It's an infrastructure, meaning an internal guts thing, but man, would it solve a lot of problems and therefore save a lot of money, plus generate a lot more sales. So, this is a pretty big project. Needless to say, as the project advances, a lot of people want, and it's clear that it's going to win, there are a lot of people who want to claim authority over that one. Mm -hmm. And in the early stages, when you're trying to get it up and rolling, everybody's trying to kill it because it's going to change something about what, you know, they do or how they do or undermine their authority. So we're looking at that left and right lateral that you described and have a lot of overlap. And we have added to this a manager that won't help that person defend their sector, their project, their piece. Yeah, I love your reaction. I can see your face on this reacting is just going, what? Why would a manager do that? And that's exactly what's happening. So kind of, I see this way too many times. You're sent out in the corporate world to go off and do this thing. And it's a good thing. And you believe in it. Other people believe in it. But when that first Attack comes from either side, not attack, but encroachment comes from either side. You don't have anybody there to help you push those folks back into their own boxes. So, what's your advice?
2: Wow, that's a great question. (laughs) To me, it all starts at whoever that leader is and that leader's boss, because it has to flow all the way down. So, the boss has to give this person's leader their boss. They had to say, this is your area. Mm -hmm. You have to have that top cover all the way down so that the boss is able to come back and say, no, this is encroachment. You stay in your own swim lane. You know, we have left and right lateral limits. You can go do your own thing. Now, for the actual person that's experiencing this, that's a really tough position that they're going to have to be in. And it, it depends on the person. If the person's strong enough to stand up and say, no, this is my sector, this is my authority, my my responsibility, and they're able to convince the others that they shouldn't be encroaching, that's one piece of it. However, if it's much bigger than that, I think that's when you really have to have that top cover from your boss to still delineate, this is your left and right lateral limit. It might come to the point where you have to bring those left and right lateral limits in a little bit due to politics from the office or whatever it might be, but still try to maintain as much of that original sector as possible. But really for the person that's on the ground, you know, those sectors aren't necessarily given you don't create those sectors. Your boss creates those for you. Yeah.
1: I think one of the frustrations that I see regularly is that the lanes are not clearly defined that there is massive overlap between, and people are doing the same work in different parts of the organization, and boy, does it get frustrating and yes. disappointing and a whole host of everything else. So it's hard. And I know a bunch of managers who kind of hedge their bets. I want to get this person to do it, and I get this person over here to do it, and I get a third person over here to do it, and one of them will come up with a good solution. But what you're doing is demotivating everybody in the mix.
2: Absolutely. Okay. That doesn't sound like somewhere I'd want to work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think most people would agree with you on that statement. And we're right back to 80% of the people walk out the door because they believe that there's a prospect for a better life out there, which has more autonomy, more authority, um, and whatever else it was we said with the um, opportunity and affiliation, I think I said. All right. What else do you see, Jen, that makes this difference in sort of taking this the trust and beyond? Um, for the motivation, the dedication, and the loyalty. So we got the lanes. We got that concept.
2: Correct. So this is, it all rolls together. So as the leader of people, you want to make sure that they have that authority, responsibility, opportunity, and inclusion, right? So you have to give something up. And that's one of the hardest parts of being a leader is you have to, Show that trust we talked about trust just a minute ago, but you have to show that trust in that team member by giving up some of your own power to let them do what they need to do, and that's one of the hardest parts of being a leader because it's so easy to and i'm 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 one of the worst people with this too is like I want to do it myself, I can do it, and you're not giving that other person that opportunity to show that they can do it that they can grow. You have to let things go. You have to allow them the space and you have to back off, but know when at some point you might have to step in. Right.
1: That one of the things that I believe, uh, particularly when you're an expert leader, so I know how things need to be done and it's my responsibility to make sure they are done well and (laughs) accurately and thoroughly. And that means I probably know how to do it better than anybody else doesn't work out that you can do it all. But the net result is the fear of a mistake Mm -hmm. or the fear of something isn't particularly well done. And so I think that means then that you're not willing to give up power because you're afraid of being found lacking in somewhere, having a mistake on your job. So how do you help those folks? Well,
2: that's that's the easy part is you start off small. Mm -hmm. Give somebody a project, report, analysis, whatever it might be, and start small. Mentor that person, ensure that they understand what your criteria is, what your standards are, and then let them work on that. Now, check back from time to time as they're in that learning process to make sure that it's still coming in at your expectations. And like I said, I, I am still like one of the worst people in this and it's something that I have to do all the time and right mind myself of if I'm giving something to somebody and saying, I need you to get this done? Am I giving them the proper information of how, not necessarily how I want it done, but the expectations of how it should be done?
1: Okay. Now, what if you have unreasonable standards? I mean, you've got 30, 20 years of experience doing this, and you just hired somebody who's got three. How do you handle the expectations of what they can realistically be prepared to do on their own?
2: I think you need to talk to them and understand what their capabilities are. So go through a bit of an interview process. Do you understand this process? Do you understand this analysis? Tell me how you would do it and start getting that feedback from them. Understand what their limits are and then start there. Now start to push those boundaries out, you know, as they're starting to get better and really start to, you, you know that you're good to a certain baseline. Once you got that, push that boundary. Push it as fast as you can, because now they're getting to understand, like, oh, this is a bigger project. I know how to do this. And, oh, I'm really kind of stretching myself. But still give them the training so that they're not just falling flat on their face and giving you an inferior product. But start at a baseline and then just push. Push as fast as you can, as fast as they're able to keep up. Okay. All right.
1: I love what you said in this part, Jen. So if I just sort of try to go back and summarize the tidbits for me that just kind of rang true in this, when I'm trying to push beyond trust to the motivation, the dedication, and the loyalty, that kind of where we really get great things done. I've got as a leader to give up something, and that's a bit of my own power to grant it to somebody else and show trust in them. And I'm going to do that a little bit by defining the lanes fairly clearly. So here's the thing that you have the authority over. Small lanes, if you're just getting started. Wider lanes, if you've got some more experience. And then you said here, I'm going to start with paying really close attention to what your capabilities are if I'm leading you. And I'm going to do that by asking a bunch of questions. Do you understand this? Do you understand that? Do you understand something else? How would you do this? Walk me through the steps that you would see. And I see where your boundaries are and what you can do. And i let you go up to that boundary. And after that point, what I want to do is start pushing that boundary out as fast and as hard as I can. But I start with a base of knowing that in this boundary, we're all in great shape. Fabulous analogy, Jen. I love it. Thank you. To lead, I have to give up some of my own power. Wow, is that a powerful statement. And then my second favorite statement of the day is this notion that people leave for the prospect that they can have a better life. I just think that's a great way to describe it. All right, Jen, I want to end with one closing question, which is, and you got a minute and a half to answer it. Okay. What takes you out of your comfort zone?
2: I am out of my comfort zone whenever I am confronted with something, uh, like like a confrontation. Okay. I grew up in a family um, where nobody confronted each other, and so it was a very new thing for me. Everybody got along, and if you didn't get along, then you were passive aggressive about it. (laughs) So so I have a hard time with confrontation, and the way that I've gotten through that, and, and I think the military has helped me the best with this, is being able to stand up, understand who I am, have faith in who I am in order to go forward and have that discussion, however hard it might be. And going forward with that but i'm just because for 20 years of my life i was not used to confrontations that's what takes me out of the comfort zone the most that i have to remember no i'm a strong person i'm ready and i can go and tackle whatever it might be
1: okay and i love that you started with i have to stand up because the stand up is that physical thing of i can stand up i can do this i'm going to have the courage to have this conversation and i'll lead for my invasive strength fabulous Jen, what a pleasure. Sadly, we are out of time. My guest again today is Jen Donahue. As you've heard, she's a U.S. Naval officer in the reserves at the moment, a leadership coach, an engineer, and an entrepreneur. And she is the founder of the globally recognized J.L. Donahue Engineering. And she works with all sorts of different clients on engineering projects, building bridges, constructing combat outposts. Um, and is known as the earthquake dock in various parts of the world, having worked on some ma- rather amazing uh, earthquake projects. Jen, thank you for being a guest today.
2: Thank you, Wanda. Really appreciate your time today. It was great fun. Join well. us next week for more wisdom in
1: getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to know more about how Jen puts all the three of these steps into practice, join us at our brand new subscription service, outofthecomfortzone.com. you.